0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 as we come back to what are some uh, ominous chapters as we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, Matthew 11, 12, and 13, really uh, kind of detailing some uh, of the many conflicts that Christ had in His ministry. Uh, Matthew groups them all together partly because it was during this season of life that they started to really erupt in Christ's ministry. But not only that, I mean, he even takes some earlier stories and he, he combines them all together to try to crystallize in our mind, if you will, the source of where some of this conflict is coming from, so that we can kind of see it all there together. And all of that messaging finds its pinnacle in our passage this morning. It, it sort of crystallizes in our mind here what exactly was going on in so much of this, this conflict. This passage in Matthew 12, verse 15 through 21, uh, gives us what is one of the longest quotes in the New Testament, certainly the longest quote in Matthew. A passage is filled with familiar phrases, but often misunderstood, divorced from its context. But we have an opportunity today uh, uh, to, to, to look at it, I think, and get a, a beautiful... Uh, and uh, remarkable portrait of the faithfulness of our Savior, really the glory of our Savior, in contrast to all of this conflict that he finds himself in. Let me just begin by reading it for us, and I'm sure you'll find it familiar as Matthew quotes from Isaiah the prophet here. He says in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. What you have here is really a profound contrast between two portraits, if you will, two perspectives on the Savior. One of them is His withdrawal, I guess you say, or His uh, fleeing away from conflict. And the other is the affirmation of from God the Father, the affirmation from His heavenly Father of exactly what He's doing. This is exactly what God would have called Him to do. It is it is a portrait in one sense of rejection and in another sense of total affirmation. In fact, some of the greatest, most profound words of affirmation that you'll find anywhere in Scripture of the Savior and it comes in contrast to everything that's going on. Now, to understand this, we can break the text if, into, if you will, two sections. The first one, just sort of contextually or, or presenting for us the background, we might call his response to the rejection of his enemies in verse 15. Matthew notes there that Jesus withdrew because he was aware of this. What was he aware of? Well, he was aware in verse 14 that the Pharisees were conspiring against him. He was aware that they were wanting to destroy him. He was aware of their hatred. He was aware of their animosity. He was aware of their rejection. He knew all of this. This wasn't a mystery to him, and it wasn't a surprise to him. This is the reaction, not only of the religious establishment, they gave voice to it, but this is the reaction of Israel at large that was largely one of rejection. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And everything that happens, everything that unfolds in these few verses is really unfolded and and, an explanation of that one reality, the reality of, of this kind of animosity against him. And we can take note of how he responds to it, just uh, in the contemporary scene. First of all, he withdraws from there. He withdraws from the place where these religious leaders would have had control, where they would have had awareness, where they would have been uh, sort of uh, uh, they would have been able to know where he was. He 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 flees that territory. It's not the first time we saw this, by the way. Back in chapter four, whenever John the Baptist was arrested in Judea we're told in verse 12 when he heard that John had been arrested he withdrew to Galilee so he fled that territory and went into the safer regions of Galilee later on in verse 13 of chapter 14 Matthew 14:13 14, when he hears that John the Baptist is finally beheaded we read that he withdrew from there into a boat to go to a desolate place by himself. The following chapter, the Pharisees find him and he engages in another quarrel with them over their religious traditions. And it says in verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And then having withdrawn from Tyre and Sidon, we find him in another confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, where they're demanding a sign from him. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then he left and departed from them. So you see this kind of continual retreat, continual withdrawal in Jesus' ministry. So what Matthew is telling us here is this is not just a one-time uh, event This was sort of the course of his life. He kept withdrawing, he kept going away, he kept departing, he kept leaving. He was, in that sense, he was escaping the conflict. Now you can draw different conclusions from that. People might assume that Jesus was sort of against conflict or that he was afraid of conflict. He might be like some of us. We just, we avoid it. We just don't like to have hard and difficult conversations. You might assume that and that he's just sort of doing what most people naturally do, except for the fact that when it comes a certain time near the end of Christ's ministry... Not only does he engage in conflict, he marches boldly and courageously right into the city of Jerusalem, right into the very center of the temple compound, and he spends the better part of a week confronting the Pharisees day after day, telling them, warning them, not only that they are rejected by their God, but that he himself is the very son of God. He does everything that you could do to stoke animosity. So this was not an issue of him, or I should say fearful of conflict, unwilling to engage in it. There's something else going on, which Matthew is trying to explain to us. By the way, he also mentions here that as he's withdrawing, he's also healing. That's the second response to their rejection. He's healing people. That's so what he says. Many people followed him and he healed them all. I mean, it was so sort of this same thing that we've seen we, over and over again throughout Matthew's gospel, this comprehensive healing ministry. We've talked about it many times, how this distinguishes Jesus from the pseudo healers of the modern church, the people who claim to be healing, but they're only doing it at very select times with very select people with relatively minor ailments. Jesus' healing was totally different. He healed everyone who came to him. He healed everywhere he went. He healed almost every day. And he healed all kinds of diseases, even to the point of raising people from the dead. This was just manifold healing, indiscriminate to some extent, healing. And this was the very thing that should have generated broad recognition of who he was, his identity as the Messiah, but in fact... It was one of the things that generated hostility against him. It was his healing that caused so much animosity. This was his healing that caused people to want to destroy him. This is the thing that they said he was doing by the power of Satan. It was the thing which uh, the Pharisees conclude in John 11, that if they let him go on doing this, that the Romans are going to come and take away their place. They say in one point in John that if, if he goes on doing this, everyone's going to believe in him. So they, they know exactly what's going on. And it causes them to hate him. Jesus knew this. But he doesn't hold back. Doesn't hold back from the kindness. It doesn't stop his ministry. He has the accusation after accusation hurled against him. But his compassion continues to move him to heal people by the hundreds and by the thousands. Unyielding in his calling And in his ministry. And then thirdly, you'll notice in verse 16 that as he's healing these people, he's warning them not to make him known. Not to make him known. Just like his withdrawal from various places throughout Israel, we see him giving warnings to people not to make him known. Back in chapter 8, remember, he healed a leprous man, and he told the leprous man, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them, but say nothing to anyone. In chapter 9, he heals two blind men, and he sternly warns them, see that no one knows about it. In chapter 16, when the When he asks the disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And they make the declaration, you're the Christ, the Son of God. He strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he's the Christ. It's really kind of a, it's kind of a head scratcher. This man who is going everywhere seemingly to proclaim the gospel is at the same time telling people not to Proclaim the gospel, not at least to tell people who he is. Many of the ones who were being healed strictly warning them not to do any of this. And why? Well, we have some indication when we look into the scripture about why this is. For example, in John six fifteen, after he had healed, excuse me, after he had fed five thousand people, we're told, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he knew that there was sort of a fervor that was being stirred up that was attaching itself to him with sort of political expectations, a kind of philosophy, if you will, that if he has this kind of power, therefore, it should yield itself in a a kind of a regime that met their expectations. They were going to come, take him by force, and make him a king after their own liking, if you will. In the next chapter, there was a feast of booths going on down in Judea. And Jesus, it says, knew that the Jews wanted to kill him. But his brothers were saying to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see your works that you're doing, for no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to, him, said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil." So he says, I I can't go right now. I can't go down there because my time hasn't come. Your time, meaning your perspective, your worldly perspective, you belong to this age. You can go wherever you want. The world doesn't hate you the way it hates me. But it hates me and is seeking to destroy me. I can't go because my time hasn't come. All of these things were really... The explanation of why Christ was retreating, why He was withdrawing, why He was commanding people not to say anything about Him. He knew what was coming. In fact, when He told the disciples not to proclaim His name, uh, having having a, a, a testified, I guess you might say, having proclaimed that He's the Christ, He says this to them, He warned them, instructed them not to say anything to anyone, for, He says... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up the third day. So he was well aware that this withdrawal and this silencing was not going to, not going to forestall the inevitable. He knew what was happening. He knew the hatred. He knew the animosity. He knew what, would lay, what lay ahead of him. But he had, at this period of time, a season. A season when he was not going to engage in the conflict, when he was not going to engage in the quarreling. A season when he was going to carry out his ministry as obscurely and as quietly as he possibly could. So that if anything is obvious, if anything is obvious from all of this early on in Jesus' ministry, is that all of the hostility that surrounded him was not of his own choosing. He didn't come to stoke this stuff. He didn't come to inflame uh, tensions. He didn't come to generate animosity. And he certainly, certainly did not come to try to overthrow anything. If anything, he wanted to find quiet corners where he could fulfill his ministry, heal the sick, preach the gospel to the poor with as little interference as possible. Now, all of that, in some ways, is just a summary of everything we already know. If you've been studying through Matthew, you know these things. These are not surprises to you, but really provides the context, the cue, if you will, for the Scripture reference that Matthew wants to give to us, which takes us from the portrait of this uh, rejection or the re- re- portrait of the response to the rejection to really a second portrait that's laid out for us in verse 17 through 21. It's a a portrait of God's delight or description of God's delight in this Savior. And he links it all in verse 17 by telling us that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. It comes specifically from Isaiah's Uh, latter half chapter 40 through 55 uh, a sort of a section of comfort written to Israel in captivity and in those 15 or 16 chapters you have four uh, what are known as servant songs you read uh, Isaiah 40 through 55 you'll encounter these in chapter 42 in chapter 49 in chapter 50 and then in chapter 53 the great suffering servant or really beginning at the end of chapter 52, these four servant songs. And they stand out from all the rest of the chapter in the way that they speak about this coming servant. Not that it's the only place he talks about a servant. In fact, several times God uses the term servant to refer to the nation of Israel, but they're a trembling servant. They're a fearful servant. They're a helpless servant. They're a servant that is struggling to trust God with their future because they're presently, at the time Isaiah was writing and when they were receiving this, they were in captivity. And so while they were the servant of God, they were, they were a captive servant and they were a fearful servant. But God is writing these chapters and if there's one overall message of these chapters, it is this. That God is about to reshape the events of the world. He's about to reshape history. He's going to move armies and nations and kings in a way that's going to completely astound their mind. He's going to do all of these things in order to affect his plan of blessing Israel. That's the sort of the big backdrop of Isaiah 40 through 55. But in the course of all of this, He begins to talk to them in these four servant songs about an individual that he's going to raise up, who's going to be a part of this overall plan of affecting world history and world events to bring about blessing to Israel. And that is one of these songs that Matthew is quoting from here. He quotes from the first one in Isaiah 42, this introduction, if you will, that comes with a description of this servant. But it comes with, if you will, a, a description of really an unexpected operation. I mean, if you're talking about someone who's going to shape the world, if you're talking about someone who's going to sort of steer world events and world history and nations and kings, it generates in your mind a certain sort of, uh, a, a certain, uh, sort of profile of what that person is going to be. But he's telling us that this servant is coming and he's going to be used by God as central to this overall plan. But what he's going to do in shaping world events and world history is not going to be through the traditional means of military might and military power. Rather, it is going to be through humble, almost quiet operations. And that's what Matthew gives us here as a description of Christ. This gives us some idea, some explanation of the response of Christ to all of this animosity. Why is he responding the way he's responding? Why is he doing what he's doing? Well, it's because he's this kind of a servant. What kind of a servant? Well, there's four descriptions here that he gives to us. First of all, he's chosen and beloved, which is important. This is the way he's introduced. Behold my servant in whom I've chosen my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. This is God's chosen, or we might say God's choice servant. This is a word that, that uh, carries with it the connotation of choosing something in order to show it favor of some kind. In other words, this isn't like, you know, going in your garage and choosing a, a shovel, a tool that you're going to use for some project. Or choosing an apple out of a barrel that you're going to eat. This is the choice, the selection of something in order to show special favor to it. It's used sometimes even of adoption because of the, the, the unique special choice that people make when they adopt a child. Well, this, he says, is God's chosen servant. And he sort of explains that with the follow-up phrase, with whom my soul is well pleased. I delight in Him. He pleases me. He, he brings me joy, in other words. That, that is the sort of the overall description of Christ. Now this is unique. You may not realize this, but this is unique. That someone would be called the one whom God is well pleased with it 's used of Christ a couple of times, you may remember it as baptism, that the spirit came down upon him, and out of heaven there was a voice that said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased and even later on, in the sermon on the excuse me the amount of transfiguration, once again there was a voice. Coming out of heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Luke actually records it saying, this is my son, my chosen one. So we assume that both things were said on the same occasion. This is my son, my chosen one with whom I'm well pleased. The same formula that you find right here in Isaiah 42. All of this carries the idea of God taking special delight in this one. And he even accentuates it by saying that he's the beloved one. The one whom God loves. My beloved. He represents everything that God delights in. He represents everything that is right. Everything that is true. Everything that is righteous. Everything that is lovely. He represents grace and he represents holiness. He represents faithfulness. Everything that he is represents the things that God takes delight in. He is in that way the sinless servant. The perfect servant. The servant that is God's delight. Now we speak a lot about love. We even think about God's love for us. We sing about God's love for us. We think about God's special love that He showers on us. But the Bible is always, always clear on this matter. That if God loves you, and if God has a special love for you, it is a derivative love. It is a derived love. It's always clear that your love that you receive from God is derived... From your position in Christ. You see, he loves Christ. Christ is his beloved. Christ is the one in whom he takes delight. Christ is his chosen one. And so therefore, you and I, if we receive the love of God, it is because we are in Christ. Or as uh, Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 1... Uh, we are in the beloved. You and I, we are chosen in the beloved. So if you receive the, the love of God, if if you find the, the delight of God in your life, it is a derivative kind of a love. Or another way to say that is if God was not well pleased with Christ, there would be no way for him to be well pleased with you. No way. Because you cannot be what he delights. So we are chosen by God in the beloved. We could never make God this, uh, this happy or this joyous in and of ourself. God could never make this kind of declaration of you and me on our own. It's only as we are in him. Because God's pleasure and God's love and God's selection of Christ for special favor... He then becomes the channel through which you and I can receive that same kind of special favor and special kindness and special love. So all the more, it should be obvious to us that if God delights in the fact that he's beloved, if God has chosen him to show this kind of special favor, if that's a source of joy for God, how much more should it be for us, right? You and I who couldn't be the beloved of God on our own. You and I who couldn't uh, bring God delight on our own. How much more should it be great news to us that he is the beloved. That he is the delight of God. It should warm our hearts to hear that God delights in him. Because that means that by being in him, he can delight in us. So this is the servant of God. The first thing we learn about him Is that God delights in him because he does what God delights in. He is who God delights in. He shows favor to his servant because everything about this servant brings him joy. And in as much as the world hated Jesus, in as much as the world sought to destroy Jesus, God delights in him and God chooses him. The world rejects him, God chooses him. The world hates him, God loves him. He is everything that God wanted, even though the world cannot see it. Even though people will not accept it. He is everything that God wanted. Not only that, we learn, secondly, that He was Spirit-filled. Second half of verse 18, I'll put my Spirit upon Him, and He'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So God puts His Spirit on Christ, or we would say He's Spirit-filled. That's the language that's used in Scripture. Matthew 4, you may remember, uh, when he was baptized, the spirit came down on him, and then the spirit led him out into the wilderness at that point. Or as John says, excuse me, as Luke says, he was filled with the Spirit from that point. You may remember he even stands up in the synagogue of Nazareth, and reads from the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus closes the scroll and says, This day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. So, at his baptism, he received this Spirit filling. Up until that point, he had lived his life, faithful as it was, in relative obscurity. He had lived his life uh, as a... Carpenter, we understand, as a worker in a small town, uh, almost forgotten, no doubt uh, recognized by those close to him as a righteous man, but not really in any way recognized as a minister until the day that God filled him with his spirit at his baptism. And this is what happens when God has a servant that he wants to accomplish a special task. He fills them with for the purpose of that task with his spirit. You see it happening with Joshua when he led the people, children of Israel into the promised land. You see it with Micah when he was called to to, uh, uh, prophesy. You see it with King Saul even when Saul was leading the armies of Israel. You see it first of all with Bezalel. Bezalel was the man who was filled with the spirit of God in order to design the tabernacle and build the tabernacle. And so for that special task, God filled him, empowered him with the Spirit. And even when you get to the New Testament, John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Peter, whenever he stands up to preach on the day of Pentecost, is filled with the Spirit for the purpose of that preaching. Later on, whenever he stands before the Sanhedrin, once again, we're told he's filled with the Spirit for the purpose of proclaiming Christ in the face of opposition. And over and over again, you see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a a special filling by God of particular servants for particular tasks. Well, the same is true of Christ. He is anointed. He is filled with the Spirit at His baptism. Now, that might seem a head-scratcher to you. Uh, You might say, well, wait a second. He is God in the human flesh, right? Why? Since He's God... Would he need the spirit to fill him? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus was God in the human flesh, but that in becoming human, he took on human nature. He was fully human, meaning 100% human. And at the same time, he didn't shed an ounce of his deity, so he's also 100% God. But by God's design or by God's sort of determination, Jesus would carry out his life and his ministry in dependence upon God. In other words, in his human nature, God determined that he would carry out that ministry the same way that you you and I carry on our life. The same way that we might carry on our ministries by dependence on God. That means not only does he have to depend on God for living a righteous life. He was tempted as we are, the scripture says. He was weary. He was tired. He was suffering. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He faced all those same temptations that you and I did, you and I do, yet without sin. So in his humanity, he depended on the Spirit. But more particularly, when it came time for his ministry, he had to depend on the Spirit for empowerment for the ministry. In fact, Acts 10.38, Peter says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So in order for him to go out and do his ministry, he had to depend on the Holy Spirit. And that meant he had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Matthew says he does that. And he says, why, in verse 18, so that he could proclaim justice to the Gentiles, among other things. So this was his his life. He was the vessel. He was the instrument of God, dependent on God, carrying out the ministry of God. All of this bound up with God putting His Spirit on Jesus, empowering Him to carry out His plan. Thirdly, we see that He did all of this, particularly with a gentle ministry. And this is where we really begin to gaze into the profound wonder of Christ. Because Isaiah says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench. So this is really the ultimate explanation of why He's withdrawing, why he's not engaging in these quarrels and disputes with the Pharisees at this point. I mean, God loved him. They hated him. God chose him. They rejected him. They wanted to engage in squabbles and quarrels, and he wanted to just withdraw and go quietly about his ministry. There were plenty of others who wanted him to engage, they wanted him to engage. Not only with the scribes and Pharisees, they wanted him to engage with the Romans and with everything else. They looked upon him as the kind of leader they had hoped for, but they were expecting the wrong kind of leader. Isaiah says he's not going to quarrel. He's not going to cry aloud. No one's going to hear his voice in the streets. This is the servant who was sent to Israel to carry out God's plan of moving world events, moving world history in order to to fulfill God's blessing for Israel. And for someone to do that, you would expect it to be done with noisy insurrection. You would expect it to be done with agitation and clamor and fomenting of rebellion. But Isaiah says, and Matthew quotes it to help us understand that, Is not his approach. Certainly not in his first coming. He may come in his second coming as a conquering king, but in his first appearing, he was quiet and he was gentle. And that is the way that he's going to upend the world. In fact, Matthew says it. Matthew quotes it here. He's going to do this. He's going to to not cry or quarrel. He's not going to lift up His voice. He's not going to break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering uh, uh, wick until He brings justice to victory. This wasn't just some sort of momentary anomaly for Him. This was... We might say his philosophy. This was his approach. That's why you see him keep withdrawing from conflict. That's why he keeps telling people to keep quiet. He doesn't want to spread his fame. He doesn't want to be a spectacle in that way. He just wants to quietly heal people and try to speak to them about the more important issue, not just of their broken bodies and corrupted bodies, but of their broken and corrupted hearts. In fact, the prophet says these beautiful words, a bruised reed he will not break. It's a wonderful image. We sing it in our songs. Pictures these reeds which were largely used for measuring instruments. They would be cut off and carried to the market to measure out cloth and other things that needed to be cut and uh, used over and over again. But if they were ever uh, damaged in some way, they became flimsy and floppy and limp and were no longer of any value for their primary purpose of measuring and so they would be crumpled up and thrown out. This obviously is an image for what? Discarded people? Damaged people? Vulnerable people? Rejected people? Probably... Illustrated best in his healing ministry, those people who might, we might say were marginalized by society because they were looked on by society as having no value. They had no place. But here he is, he's welcoming them. We've already seen it at the end of chapter 11, his call to all those who labor and are heavy laden. He calls them to rest. He didn't come to crush those who were already bruised by the trials of the world or bruised by the weight of their sin or bruised by the burdens of their conscience, bruised by the scorn of other people. He didn't come to further crush those people. There was an extreme gentleness about his ministry. No one ever had more right, by the way, to exercise force, nor more capability and power. He could have called legions of angels if he wanted to. No one ever had more right to point out the flaws, to point out the weaknesses, to point out the sin of others. But he was as eager to forgive, to restore, to be patient over and over and over and over and over. Literally pleading, with people, sometimes the most sinful people, to come to Him. Not only that, He says, the smoldering wick He will not quench. That's a reference to the linen cloth that was put down the spout. Their, their lamps were made kind of like a teapot, if you will. They had a little spout. They would put a, a linen wick down that spout and fill it with oil on the inside. And the uh, linen would wick the oil up the cloth and would keep the fire lit until uh, from time to time that cloth was burned too much so that it didn't have the length to quite dip down into the oil and to keep itself aflame. And it would start to go out and begin to smoke and smolder at which point people would pinch off the smoke and pull the, the useless wick out and throw it aside and replace it with something else. But he pictures here this servant who recognizes even those people who are at that point in their life. They're at the end. They're barely drawing enough oil to keep aflame. They cannot find the resources to go on. They are just about quenched in their heart, just about quenched in their spirit Just about quenched in their strength and their faith. Their fire is about to go out. They can't reach for any more depth. And he's not even willing to set them aside. He's not even willing to discard them. I love these words by Richard Sibbs in his little book entitled The Bruised Reed. He says this. We see how our Savior Christ bore with Thomas in his doubting. And with the two disciples that went to Emmaus, who wavered as to whether he came to redeem Israel or not. He quenched not the little light in Peter, which was smothered. Peter denied him, but he did not deny Peter. If thou wilt, thou canst, said one poor man in the gospel. If thou canst do anything, said another. Both were smoking flax. Neither of them was quenched. If Christ had stood upon his own greatness, he would have rejected him who came to him with his if. But Christ answers his if with a gracious and absolute grant, I will be thou clean. That's the nature of our Savior. This is a, this is a servant in whom God delights. This is the way he wants to carry out his ministry. This is his philosophy, if you will. He doesn't discard, he doesn't throw away, he doesn't quench, he doesn't bruise, or he doesn't break. It's not as if any reed is unuseful to him, it's not as if any flax can't be redeemed, it's not as if he wants to destroy anyone. Those who are crushed by sin and suffering, those who are bowed down with care, those who have no spiritual resources, those who are trampled and despised by the world, ignored, the weak, the powerless, the helpless, these are the ones he's seeking out. The very opposite, by the way, of the religious leaders. This was the gentle Savior. This was his way of ministry. This was the thing that brought God so much delight In the way that he did it. Now again. You might imagine. That if you're going to have a servant. Who's going to reshape the world. Who's going to reshape world history. Who's going to move kingdoms and events. In order to bring out some. Magnanimous eternal purpose. You might imagine that he would hobnob. With the rich and the powerful. You might imagine that he would go to the movers and the shakers of the world. You might imagine that he would not waste his time with the discarded elements of the weak and the tired. You might imagine that he would overlook all those things which the world has already overlooked. That he would find useless those things and those people that the world has already declared as useless. But it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. These were the very ones... He was seeking out. And then finally, the fourth characteristic, which is really the shocker, is his victory in justice. His victory in justice. This is is astounding. That for all of this gentleness and all of this retreat and all of this withdrawal and all of this... Patience and all this dealing with people who can't even find enough resources in themselves to get through the next trial, all this unwillingness to snuff out the smoldering wick and to break the bruised reed, all of this gentleness and quietness. What's going to be the result? Victory. He says that this is all going to happen until he brings justice. To victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, you can't imagine if you're a Jew and you're sitting in captivity in Babylon and you're sort of laboring away under all the oppression and everything going on. And day by day, all you can think about and all you can imagine is that maybe someday, somehow, you might, with your people, gather up enough sort of uh, uh, willpower and resources. To either break out of your captivity or maybe even to overthrow your oppressors and go back and reestablish your nation. But all of it channeled through a paradigm of power and might and force. And it will be a struggle and it will be a battle and you'll go on and on and on until one day possibly you might win. But he says... In this amazing and remarkable statement, I'm going to send my servant. And this is my servant who's not going to snuff out the smoldering wax. He's not going to break the bruised reed. He's not going to raise up his voice in the streets. No one's going to hear him. And this is the way he's going to carry on his ministry until justice finds its full victory. The word, by the way, justice in, in the Hebrew is not just the idea of like a legal verdict in a, in a courtroom. It really, the word mishpat in, in Hebrew kind of has the idea of the overall ordering of society according to God's design of righteousness. It's a very broad term. And so what he's saying here is that this servant is going to be used to so move world events and world history to bring about not only blessing to God's people, but the very ones who are oppressing God's people and holding them in captivity, the very Gentiles who are your enemies now, are actually going to put their hope in this servant. It is a remarkable remarkable vision. Folks, people don't understand this. They do not understand this because they do not understand this Savior and they do not understand the power of this gospel and they do not understand the way that God works in the hearts of men and women And so sometimes even in their desire to advance the kingdom of God, they assume that they have to resort to forcefulness, to quarreling, to fighting, to uh, exalting their own name or whatever it might be. They do not understand this. And yet God is telling us, this is my servant in whom I delight. This is my beloved And this is exactly why he's doing what he's doing. This is why he keeps running away. This is why he keeps withdrawing. This is why he's not going after and engaging because he understands that when the gospel goes forth, it's going to go forth in, listen to this, otherworldly ways. It's going to go forth not in the ways of this world. It's going to go forth in the ways of heaven. It's going to be a kingdom that's not from this world. And it's going to be a power that's not from this world. And so, its seeds can be sown gently. Its ministry can be carried out quietly. Its call can go to those who are wavering, its earnest attention is given to those who are struggling. His patience is shown to all. My beloved servant, the one in whom my soul delights, this is the way he's going to work. And you'll be surprised, you'll be amazed as he keeps doing this and keeps doing this and keeps doing this until justice finally wins until the whole world is remade by Him. You know, He's still doing that. Did you know that? He's still ministering this way, or He still calls the gospel to be ministered this way. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I came to you, how? In the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I came to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. See, Paul got it. He understood it. He understood That this is the way the gospel advances. That this is the way the gospel is ministered. That this is the way that God overcomes all hostility, all rejection, all animosity. He does it with the secret power of the gospel. He calls us to do the same. God's beloved one The one God delights in, rejected by the world, but embraced by all those who see His true beauty as a servant of God. Father, we're so grateful for this servant. We're so grateful. If only we could delight in Him the way You delight in Him. If only we could fully see His power working through weakness. We have glimmers of it, but so often our flesh blinds our hearts and minds. Help us to delight in Him the way that You do. Help us to love Him. For in a profound way, it is His perfect servanthood that is the source of Your love for us it is these very traits and characteristics that generate your delight that then overflows to us so that we can bask in the love that you have for us or these truths are too deep for us to ponder and yet we ask for your grace that we can delight in him the way we ought and in fact the way we ought it's to walk as He walked. To minister as He ministered. And to see the power of the gospel do its work through you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.